how do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to The Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Matt Ellis. Matt is the founder and CEO of Measurable, which is the world's most widely adopted ESG environment, social governments, data management solution for commercial real estate. Real estate, not real estate. (laughs) He also just recently wrote the book, From Green to ESG. Matt, welcome, man. Happy to have you on the show. Hey, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, dude. And I'm excited to carve this up with you because you have a really unique offering. I love how you kind of crafted your company with hitting on different areas from from the data to the solution to the SaaS. So, um, but before we get into all that, let's go th- or go through a real quick revenue rundown. So, can you give me an idea on the revenue range that you guys are at right now? Yeah, Ryan, we're a growth stage company. Uh, say, think a Series D, well in excess of 15 million in annual recurring revenue. Um, and we employ over 200 people, raised over $85 million in venture capital across about four rounds. Wow. That's a, it's, it's a lot, man. It's a lot. So um, good, congrats on that. And then can you talk about your solution a little bit, just so that folks have some context about what you do and who you serve and, and how you do it? Yeah, you got it. Measurable is a technology company specifically focused on ESG in real estate. So we're a vertical play in the real estate industry. It's the world's largest asset class. So it's a big market for us to address. And the technology platform that we offer consists of four things. One is our flagship software product. Uh, Think of it as a giant sort of Salesforce or ERP system for enterprise measurement, management, and disclosure of ESG. We offer a real-time data product for building optimization, energy efficiency. We offer a pure data product which is an API-based service for capital mar- real estate capital markets. So real estate uh, lenders, insurers, ratings agencies, um, that like. And then we have a professional services layer that spans across all three of those technology services. Awesome. Well, we're going we're gonna to dig deep into in all those later because it's, like I said, it's really unique in terms of how that's structured. And I can see how it kind of progressed that way, but I'd love to hear your story. However, before we get into that, you know, what about your book too? I know you just recently released that as well. What's that about exactly? The the book is about so from green to ESG, right? Um, how data transformed the real estate industry for good. Double entendre on good, <laughs> not just environmentally and socially more responsible, but for more durable and profitable uh, results in the long term. And so the book is about this transition from. Kind of like the the marketing veneer, you know, sustainability as a badge on as you know on my shirt sleeves, sort of virtue signaling, to a hard financial uh, environment, regulated environment where you need to have control over the fundamentals of your business, no different than you would over profit and loss. So it's just about how we made that transition and why that transition is fundamentally uh, positive for the industry. Awesome. How, how long did it take you to write that? I think it's really the book is an assemblage of like all the blogs and articles and stuff I've written over the last, you know, 10 years. So we kind of just went through all of that and put the themes together and then just did a quick rewrite on top of it. Nice. Well, I, that's a smart way to do it. Well, you, uh, you kind of build while you're, where you're going along versus the, uh, the painstaking process of doing a massive book that yep. you start from scratch in day one. So 
Yep. Uh, love that. So how did you get here? Like, you know, <clears throat> obviously to raise that amount of money, 85 mil, your 200 person company, uh, sounds like you're approaching multiple eight figures. Like what was the story in terms of how you got here, what you went through? And we just love to hear that, that kind of backstory. So measurable came out of my experience at CBRE. CBRE is the world's largest uh, real estate services company. And I actually started there in 2008. An amazing time to get into the real estate business. As you guys recall, 2008 was the global or the great financial crisis, the GFC. Um, and I started there as a real estate broker. And when I was out looking for you know, tenants to represent their lease transactions with landlords, I was literally knocking door to door in industrial uh, parks in East County, San Diego. Gave me a lot of time to think because most of those doors were closed and didn't want anything to do with me. And I remember stopping one time in front of a building. It was really hot in the middle of summer. And I was lingering under the awning in the shade. And I saw this decal on the door. It said, Energy Star Certified. And I kind of thought, you know, what does that mean? And, you know, why is that there? What, what does the tenant or the landlord care about Energy Star? And so I went back to my office that day in an attempt to kind of look busy for my bosses. I Googled um, Energy Star certification. And that's where I first learned about the, the idea of green building. And I have personally um, an interest in sustainability. And so I never thought that my personal interest in my professional life could come together. But it turns out green building was a phenomenon in real estate. And so I, I pursued that thread and ultimately over a period of time became the director of sustainability solutions for CBRE, which is a, uh, a corporate entrepreneurial job. So before I was an entrepreneur, I still worked mm -hmm. under the shade of the big oak tree, developing new services and businesses for CB around energy and sustainability. It taught me two things. One, there was an enormous transition underway in the economy from traditional business models to sustainable business models. That was going to disproportionately impact the real estate asset class because it's the largest and it's one of the most environmentally and socially impactful. 40% of the carbon is coming from our buildings, for example. Second thing was we couldn't measure it. So I wanted to build a technology approach to helping our customers make this transition. And that's where the idea for Measurable came from. Ah, okay. So like, what was the specific point in time where you're like, I guess, like, how did you make the transition? You know, it's, it's, it's good. I love that you're an entrepreneur and CBRE is a big company, a big beast, right? What are they, 40 billion in revenue, maybe 80 billion in revenue? I mean, they're massive. Um, and so I guess my question is, is like, at what specific point in time did you know in your heart, like, hey, there's, there's something here and I got to do this? Well, you know, I, I reached conviction over a period of like, say, a couple of years of okay. doing this discussion with our customers. And they're saying, yeah, you know, I'm seeing this trend. I'm seeing this transition. I think it actually might be kind of almost existential for our business. I'm seeing regulation emerge. So I, I knew there was a market forming up and I, I saw a big opportunity. But the, the moment that I left to pursue it was almost just, um, I presented a business plan. You know, I said, look to, to the company, to CBRE, I believe very strongly that we have the opportunity to be the winner in the green revolution. We're already the biggest property company on the planet. Right. You know, come on, this is going to change how every property operates, how debt and equity moves. And um, we need to do it using technology. And I said, no. <laughs> so I was left with, you know, I have two choices. Take that lump, you know, on the chin and, and carry on with my day job. Or say respectfully, I'd like to go pursue this, and I did the latter. 
That's awesome. So I'm sure they're probably regretting not taking you up on that. Um, <laughs> well, they're too, they're, they were great. Let me, for the record, they signed the intellectual property over to me. They supported some of their senior executives who were bullish on idea, became early angel investors. They became our first customer. Today, one of our oh, largest nice. customers. Okay. So it's been, it's, it's just every business, you know, if you're a property services company, you can understand from their perspective, well, we don't, we don't, you know, build startups, right? right? That wasn't their DNA. And so, you know, while it may in retrospect seem like something that they could have done, everybody beats their own drum. That's okay. Yeah. Well, it could be they're trying to stay in their own swim lane. I could see what you're saying with that. So I guess like, how did you make it a reality then? Because if, if your background is door-to-door, obviously you have higher level vision with, with what you're talking about being an entrepreneur. How did you turn it into software? How did you find, do you have a co-founder or did you hire a CTO right away? I, I mean, like, how did, how did you turn it into tech, I guess? Yeah, just those couple first little moves. I mean, so, the, so I knew enough to, to know that I didn't know a lot. Um, I was a real estate professional, not a technologist. But look, you know, I just turned 40. We are that crossover generation. You know, we kind of get what apps should look like. There's just an intuition that I think our generation, certainly those that came after us, are, are have natively that our forefathers didn't. So I started playing around with Balsamic, which is a wireframe mock-up. I sort of said, this is what I think the experience ought to look like. And as a subject matter mm-hmm. expert, I knew how to calculate carbon and what the real estate day job was. Um, so I could get it to there. I talked a lot with um, a great friend of mine, Lance Onkin from college, who became our CTO. And he was going, look, this is what agile software <laughs> methodologies are. He was talking to me about the concepts of a technology business. Another great friend of mine, Dave Schumann, who was our first backend engineer. I gave him a check for, I think I think it was about $80. Uh, he had <laughs> volunteered to build our first proof of concept, this little data ingestion uh, Java widget. Uh, so it was sort of like talking to my friends who had domain experience on the technology side and iterating. Very Eric Reese. I know you're a fan of business uh, books. So Eric Reese, you know, minimum viable product and lean startup and all. So I believed in that methodology and I was able to test those concepts for, for really relatively low bucks. Um, I took that proof of concept, that wireframe, and then got a contract software developer to kind of build it into a little more of an experience. And that was where I got the validation that yes, there's there, there. And I got my first revenues. Uh, okay. Love that. So you, you leveraged your personal network and then you went to a contract. How much did your MVP cost to build then once you yeah, went to that I, contract? Yeah, I want to say it was, we'd probably get 20 to 30 grand to kind of okay. get that first thing out the door that was workable. You know, that was the next iteration of that $80 <laughs> yeah, concept. $80 concept 20K, yeah. right? A little yeah. bit of a jump. A little jump. Yeah. Um, and did you just self-fund that then initially, or did you yes. have some angel investors from? Yeah. 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 Okay. Good for you, man. Way, way to make that jump. Cause that like, like that's a question that, that I always think about for myself as well as like, you know, I have a sales background, I have deep domain expertise, but then there's a technical aspect. Right. And, you know, I've seen it the other way too. I've talked to technical founders that have no sales experience and, and it's just, it's a, they're two totally different skill sets being like, deep technical experience and then having really strong sales expertise and marketing expertise. So. I, I, it's something to talk a lot about. You know, I have my experience, but I, I've seen technical founders, right? And I've seen sort of more sales or business founders. And probably if you're the unicorn and you have both of those, you're in great shape. On balance though, for what it's worth, 
I would rather have the sales business side. And the reason is this. It's astonishing in the early build of the business how little the product can matter. What matters is establishing the vision and the narrative and the increments, the value inflection points to allow you to get funding and adoption traction. Um, the product will never be perfect. And I think the engineer's tendency is to try to build the thing, right? And it's ultimate perfection and forget that, like, it doesn't matter if you're not going to get any revenue or any, at least, you know, early adopters or any of that stuff. So I, that's probably a totally biased statement. But at least with my personal experience, I mean, I'll go with it. I come from a sales background, so I'll, I'll go with it, man. I have no problem with that. But, but yeah, like, there's so many. It's, this is interesting. I so um, I've as I, I told you, I think in this show warm up, I've, I've talked to about 40 different founders over the last four months, probably more than that now. And you know, one of the interesting things is like there was Nathan Beckford, I believe it's Beckford or Bedford. I'm having a brain fart. But his his SaaS is actually around helping founders get funding. And I'm like, okay, well, walk me through like the exact framework to do that. And he just described a sales process. I'm like, okay. Another um, gentleman as well founded a company and he was a, his partner led go-to-market motion and it was exactly a sales process. So even though they're called different things, sales and marketing is integrated in pretty much everything that you do. So I get where you're saying with that. It, it makes a lot of sense. The, the ultimate power of, of like <laughs> developing a funnel, qualifying that funnel, converting, like it's, it is effective in so many aspects of the overall business, right? You see those same principles um, showing up even in your technology build, right? It's like rapid iteration, release of code, you know, qualify, validate with customer, rinse, repeat, expand. Like oh, there's sort of this, just really a believer in that iterative process. Um, so long as you know the macro vision or outcome, like I need to raise $5 million and here's why, mm-hmm. so that your iterations actually add up to that $5 million by the time. Yeah, you're exactly. <laughs> and you back into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I even, I even saw a woman apply it. She was divorced and she applied it to uh, um, relationships, like finding her next. Uh, <laughs> she had like a funnel of dating candidates that, that she sure. was going through. Sure, which, that makes sense. Sounds ridiculous, but it, it kind of makes sense. You know, if you're trying, if you have a short timeline, you know, I've, uh, she the must only have time I've gr- ever seen that, but whatever. Probably a great salesperson. Yeah, <laughs> she, she was, she was actually. So, um, so let, let's progress a little bit. Okay. So I want to get in a little bit about the structure of your company and why you set it up that way. And then I want to get like, what are you doing to grow? Because if you're at you know that Series D level, you're doing some amazing things. Because most companies don't make it there. So, how did you decide to have right the the kind of the three layers that you described with the with the PS wrapper around it? And mm-hmm. um, I'm assuming that happened gradually. Uh, yep. But maybe I mean you sound like pretty good with vision, so maybe that was your vision all along. But love to hear your take on that. Well, yeah, the vision was um, we you know it's one thing that I think Measurable did pretty well was we were able to articulate an ultimate vision of, we say, addressing ESG from meter to market. What that means is basically saying, we're going to deal with all the implications of this revolution around sustainability at every level of the entire real estate experience, whether you're buying and selling buildings or leasing them, or you're some giant pension fund investing $5 billion into a bunch of uh, asset managers, general partners, like we were going to be everywhere. And we said that and said that since the beginning and have stuck to it. 
Now, what we didn't say was, well, what's the um, product that you deliver against that vision? The first move was a, you know, naturally was SaaS. But again, I just talked about how even there we were iterating and assuming and hypothesis testing that was in fact true. It would be very reasonable to say you should build a consulting company at that time that we did that too, right? There are two products that you could have brought against the requirement. And I think when you look at measurable, that distinction between a vision and how you solution it is really important, right? Don't assume the solution. Define the problem. So when you see measurable, then we brought the SaaS product out. It worked. It worked. It worked better. It started to scale. It could scale very uh, substantially, which is a big... One of the big hurdles in prop tech is scale. It's one of the hardest industries we've seen out there to get from one building to 100,000 buildings. Um, And so we wanted to make sure we could do that. Once we had that, we had two things. One, an engine of revenue. To a data set. The engine of revenue allowed us to continue to fund the business and make it something attractive to, you know, obviously grow. The data allowed us to leverage it and create new insights that were proprietary to us. So you couldn't just build software and get them. Uh, and to expand the remit of the platform and these other areas that the data told us the customer needed help on, like making the building better. So the second part of it was this um, real-time data management, decarbonization, building optimization solution, um, and packing that into the overall platform. So again, the product vision always laid it out, always said we needed something there to make the building better, but it didn't specify what that necessarily looked like until several years into the business. And then the third product that we offer, this data product, um, again, we were finding that the other real estate stakeholders who we said we wanted to address, real estate capital markets, they couldn't consume a UI-based product. That wasn't really what they wanted, but they did want to put an address in and understand the sustainability performance of a building so they could underwrite the loan. So that looks very different. So it took us a couple of years moving from that core SaaS engine, the data insights, to figure out how to repackage that data and how to expand that SaaS experience. That makes sense. And I think it's fascinating. So like you said, it took a few years. What tipped you off? Were you getting approached and having organizations ask for it? Or eventually you started to look at the data. You're like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like, like I guess, like where was that kind of epiphany and, and how did that happen? You've got a mixture. So it depends on market maturity. So as this issue of ESG matured over the last decade, the ask of the customer became much more specific and and well defined as well. So in the beginning of a market, you know when you hear think about like first mover, blue water, blue ocean, right? Harvard Business blue School, ocean, blue yeah. ocean yeah. markets, um, high risk, high reward. It's unbounded. It's it's not well defined. The product fit, the product market fit is not established. There's no incumbent in the space to say, oh, I can do what they do, but do it better. It's literally. We think software with workflows around investor reporting or data automation will work here. So you go into that. Now you have high reward as a result. You can get a big piece of the market and, and all the other advantages. So as that market matures, though, it's not so... You can sort of see over the horizon, people are starting to say the same things in the same way. And if any product manager is out listening to this... Um, you know, this is that job, right, of, of distilling the customer's voice into a coherent narrative and then productizing against that. 
So that was happening as we're going. There were also some bets we just made. Like our core software product was a fun, you know, straight up a bet. There was, it was first mover. There was nothing out there like it. And then our data product today is totally first mover. There's nothing like it. But if you pay attention and you go, you know, I think where this should go is these capital markets players should need this data. They're probably not going to log into UI, but we can hypothesis test that. Mm-hmm. You can find yeah. your way with those breadcrumbs. Yeah. I love that. And it makes a lot of sense. And I, I get what you're saying where, yeah, with the, the market maturity, how the ask get way yep. more specific as you kind of go through time. It's just like, oh, sweet, you could do this. Now it's like, okay, sweet, totally. you can do this. We want it in this exact way, in this exact time frame, in this exact measure. And it's, we're talking a lot about product, but it also is the case with the business model, right? So like, let's just pick like a super mature market, like grocery stores or something, right? Like, you know exactly what your Apple should cost. It's totally transparent. You know that you should be selling apples both individually on the cart and by the bundle, right? And, and on we can go with the analogy. And, and business looks the same way in mature markets. It's like the widget should very specifically be this. It should very specifically cost this. And I should be able to buy one or many and get economies of scale when I do so. ESG was not that way, right? It, and it is increasingly looking more like the grocery store, but we probably have another decade before we get to that level of maturity. Mm-hmm. You know, we're somewhere in between. Well, so, and you don't have to share this if you're not comfortable, but like now with the stage you're at, like what's the percentage of revenue for the different products? Like, I guess, is your original SaaS product still the bulk of it or yeah. is it changed? Yeah, that, yeah, that thing's a beast. It's, it's the longest living thing. A lot of our other products are, you know, launched even as recently, like the data product was launched um, just this Q- in Q1. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, totally. It's brand new, very novel, but um, man, I wish our core business looked like that when it got <laughs> going. Like that thing is off on a tear. Um, it has advantages. We already have a brand. Right. We're selling into an ecosystem that already recognizes us and we could already validate a lot of their needs through the core product experience. So like you're, I, I wonder if there's something to that, but it's just like subsequent product releases should leverage the core insights of the mothership and they mm-hmm. should, you should have less risk and higher and faster reward, which is what we've seen in our business. It, otherwise you haven't learned anything from your domain. You know, if yeah. you're just throwing crap against the wall and it's not sticking, then you're not paying attention to your core business. Yeah, no, I, I love that, man. That's a really great distinction. So what's your biggest challenge right now then as you're growing? And, you know, at the stage you're at, what, what's the single biggest challenge that you're running into in terms of growing revenue? Our biggest, uh, we, have two, we have two, one is a product one and one is a geographic one. So the, 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 we're talking about a market that still is maturing, it's not mature. And what that means as a product is you have a lot of investment in adapting to the new metrics, the new models, the new frameworks, the new regulations, the new workflows, et cetera, and changing priorities around all that. So if you have a mature and stable market, you don't have to invest as much as we do in product and engineering to simply adjust, you know, to skate to where the puck is sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's something that affects everybody that plays in the space. And our business response to that is, we'll just be the most well-funded and, and um, the most dynamic in terms of engineering and technology. Like our whole business, unlike our competitive set, was software first, technology first, not consulting first, for example. So we always had the DNA to change the code, to adapt to changing market circumstances. With respect to the geography piece, 
what's happened is sustainability in real estate came out of Europe. It was actually catalyzed by major Dutch pension funds, APG, PGGM, who did us all a great service by saying this matters. Mm-hmm. And, and so that market started, it then bled into the, the States, North America, and you're seeing it move, you know, uh, Australia, sort of Anglophone countries. Now you're seeing it move into Asia. And you're like, okay, here's something that, that we need to deal with. I've got to run a business that addresses our customers' needs, who are global customers in many instances. Capital moves globally. But I have to address them in all these places that ESG is an issue. So you've got language translation. I guess I'm back on a product issue now, but language translation and other uh, GDPR compliance issues. But you also have the staffing uh, and the marketing, um, the support for that customer in Berlin versus Hong Kong. So those are all just real big operational matters to deal with. What about like what's your go-to-market though? Like which which approach to growing revenue? Well, the uh, so it's we have three growth strategies. They're probably going to sound incredibly obvious, but we make sure to differentiate the product. So what that means is basically have novel functionality. We have a couple things that we do that no one else can even touch. Um, so we're all playing catch up. We have integrated multiple credit bureaus for physical climate risk. We have TurboTax style investor reporting for for ESG, um, and we want to continue to find those novel, innovative features and functionality. Second thing is grow globally, and that's about support and staffing for the customer in Hong Kong, said versus Berlin. Mm-hmm. Third one, probably the most interesting one, is address the different segments of the real estate business, and this is where I still feel like. Measurable has been very clear from day one, and I'm surprised that people don't see real estate as a heterogeneous ecosystem of different stakeholders who must be served differently. So mm-hmm. a real estate lender is not the same as a real estate owner, um, is not the same as a real estate investor, a pension fund, or a high net worth individual. So the growth strategy of the business, those are the three things that to, to grow the company. The go-to-market is to make sure, do you have the product to address those things differently, appropriately? Are you on time, on budget when you deliver that? And then do you have a sales motion that comports to that end segment? So selling to a Bloomberg or an MSCI or a S&P Gold is not the same sell with the same personality type or deliverables that you would take to a property manager. Oh, yeah. Completely different. It's like an SMB motion versus an enterprise. Totally, motion. absolutely. So, are you running into challenges with that, like segmenting the team so that they're yeah. focused and talent the, is? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you do it. That's the job, right? The job is as the business grows and becomes more complicated in terms of its product offering and the different segments it addresses. What do you see naturally? Your segmentation is the word of the day. So, you're seeing us specialize around geographies and and customer segments. Um intersecting that with the product offering. So how do you take that product offering to those geographies or in customer segments? Right. So you're, you're seeing special, more sales engineering, you're seeing um, more enterprise account executive uh, type roles, um, bigger playbooks, that type of stuff. Right, right, okay. That's kind of what I anticipated based yeah. on some of the companies you were talking about before. So so what, what would you say is like, you know, it, it sounds like you're doing some pretty cool things with like the novel ideas, um, growing globally and then like segmentation, you know, in the real estate markets and, and the buyers. Right. So, but I guess like if you had a framework of what you have seen grow your organization, the best, 
um, would love to hear what what you think is like the single best thing that you guys have done when it comes to your sales motion or it comes to your revenue motion um, to make that a reality. I'll try to take a tack that may not be um, as often repeated because I think there's a lot of agreement around what it is to do a expert software sale, depending on whether it be to B, B to C, et cetera, enterprise or otherwise. Mm-hmm. What I think we have done very well is take the narrative and product vision and the growth strategies I just went through and beat that into every individual in the company, whether they be an account executive responsible for new sales or an account manager responsible for the growth of the existing customer or the innovation engine of the business. I make sure that everybody understands and can repeat those growth strategies and that product vision. So that way, when they go and show up in front of a prospect, that we are so consistent and everyone is always singing from that same sheet of music that I find it has a compounding effect. And what I mean is this, maybe I only do real estate. I don't know about other industries, but I suspect people talk in industries. And I suspect that a lot of the enterprise and the big sales are references And when you can be consistent from deal to deal and what you're saying, you're promising delivering, um, I think that has a lot of value and it compounds over time and it turns into what we would call a highly distinguished brand, not just product platform. And so I think that that makes our life lives. One more thing I can say about is it makes the job clear. We don't, you know, all of our people can know exactly what their role in the organization is against those, those three growth strategies. So it eliminates confusion, waste that waste time. So you pound the vision, right? You create that consistency. Um, you create reference, like deep referenceable clients because it's consistent cool. and then it compounds into a, a really strong brand. Yes. Those and then the continue core. to deliver against that. <laughs> yeah. And then, then, then rinse and repeat, right? Yeah. Um, so have you systemized customer to prospect referrals then? Um, that's a good question. I would say we're pretty darn close. You know, we like actively work with our existing customers to talk about being a reference customer, if that's what you're getting at. Um, we do customer marketing. So we know and as part of the sale and the onboarding process, we're setting out success criteria that we can document and then take to the customer and say, we did what we all agreed we we're going to do with the expectation that we could talk about it publicly and create case studies, right? That are mutually beneficial, by the way, because they have stakeholders that they need to prove what they're up to as well. So I think we want to both set that expectation. We're we're in this together. Positive outcomes are positive for us both. Um, And we do that early in the process, Um, not as a surprise. We think it went well. We'd love to do this ad hoc. Okay, good, man. Well, we're just about up on time. And, uh, you know, I love love spending the the half hour with you. I think you're doing some amazing things. I just love the vision that you have. And it's really unique with the way you approach the business. So I could see why you guys are doing well. So let's do a real quick, like founder fire, uh, rundown. What's the favorite book you've read before your favorite book? I, oh, well, I'll keep it on topic, which is, um, the lean startup by Eric Reese. I used it earlier. I'm just a just please read okay. the first chapter. Please read the first chapter, everybody. That's all you have to know about iterative business development. Okay. Love that. Uh, who's your favorite founder or CEO that you look up to, admire, appreciate what they're doing right now? Yeah. 
Okay, that's a good one. And by the way, I probably should have said my own book, but I wasn't going to do that in the last one. Um, <laughs> you can't even promote. You're like, ah, I'm you can't best. do that, right? Yeah, right? You can't do it's that. Like, it's like coming up with your own nickname, right? You can't do yeah, that. no. Um, Sasha Nardella comes out, and it's kind of weird. Like, I really respect today professionalism and leadership. I want to compare and contrast. I was just complaining this morning uh, to my brother about Elon Musk who I respect tremendously for his genius and innovative spirit, but I'm annoyed at the amateur presentation of that to the markets. And I just wish he could grow up. And I think that there are these professionals out there that are showing us what distinguished leadership looks like and results and vision. Mm-hmm. And I think he's one fine example. Okay. Love that. Uh, yeah. There's a, a guess. It, it probably hasn't aired by the time. Well, it probably would have aired by the time. Uh, another another um, CEO that I had on, his name is Ed Rossich. He's actually had seven exits and created like three billion in exits. And Amazing. he's this insane, like his, he talks a lot about leadership and like a leadership operating system that he implemented. It's really fascinating. So great episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just what I thought of because I talked to him. I think you got to put week. that in the corner oh, of the yeah. video, right? I click here for that episode. <laughs> <laughs> click here. Um, so anyways, um, and then where do you see the future of tech going? Like, where do you see in the next five years or so, um, tech, SaaS, uh, and the environment? You even weave in the environment there, man. Well, I can only, I'm going to stay in my lane on this one, right? So what I can say is I do think like clearly digitalization is running rampant against the great industries out there, real estate being probably the last sitting duck for digitalization. And what I mean by that is thinking about not just um, transitioning manual process to like technology processes, but I'm thinking about the, the transition once you've done that taking the data and turning that into an asset that's proprietary for the business. I think that's an enormous megatrend that has to be observed. And that's where you're going to find actual durable value created. I think that the, um, you know, the sustainability and environmental movement, a lot of people, I think the majority of people think that that conundrum is like about some hardware widget thing that allows us to suck carbon out of the air or, the better light bulb or something like that. I, I don't agree whatsoever with this. I think that technology and climate all exists, solar panels and so on and so forth, to decarbonize. I think the missing ingredient is measurement. And this is where I will do a plug for our own business. It's so strange to me that the environmental and social impacts of business, we all jumped over accurate tr- and measurements and transparency of that and letting markets work on that. I think we went over too far to the solution. We skipped the problem. We went to the solution mm-hmm. and we said, here's a widget and here's a widget. And no one bothered to say, well, don't we already have really efficient light bulbs, LEDs? Don't we already have fancy building envelope technologies? Don't we already have variable fan drives? Don't we already have green building design technique? Like, yeah, we have literally all of these. Do, do we even have sustainable finance and ways to direct capital more effectively to environment? We have all of these things. We do not need new widgets. We need transparency and measurement. The capital markets will do a lot of the work from there. And we just need to do it, right? We need yeah. to execute on all, all the stuff we already yeah. have. Get it to scale. Like, Get it to scale. Versus trying to find the uh, the new unicorn. So, totally. Well, hey, Matt, it was a pleasure having you on. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Measurable? And where can they find more about your book? Sweet. All the above are obviously at measurable.com. Just forget to, or don't forget to drop the E. We don't use the E, M-E-A-S-U-R-A-B-L.com. And then a lot on, I spend my time on LinkedIn. So you'll see me there. 
Awesome, man. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, man. See you, Ryan. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.